Welcome to the Retire While You Work podcast here in Nashville, Tennessee. We believe the concept of retirement in this country is fundamentally broken. We work ourselves to death and we miss out on so many of life's precious moments. I'm David Adams. I'm Carson Odom. I'm Miles Zuger. And together, as a team of certified financial planner professionals and CPAs, we're committed to helping free others from this antiquated mindset, using our three-bucket approach to managing money and finding creative ways to live now and retire while you work. Join us as we discuss a variety of financial topics and ways to help us change the way we think about time and money and which one of these is the true currency. Everybody, hello. Um, good, well, good afternoon. Um, today um, we're going to do this webinar. I wanted it to be pretty organic today. You know, four, four or five days ago, we decided just with all of the um, uneasiness around the market and the banking situation and the economy in general, my gut after 20 years of doing this just said, you know what, need to need to offer a webinar, get in front of people who are maybe. Um, wanting some information or want to do some Q&A and also just hear my thoughts on the market. So that's what we're here doing today. No real agenda. Uh, I just wanted to be visible, just showing up for our clients and friends in the community as we are all in this together. Need to remember that. Um, you can use the Q&A feature probably at the bottom of your screen. Um, and we're going to answer those, maybe some as we go, maybe towards the end. Again, this is just going to be me kind of speaking from the heart and just from notes I've taken at different um, economic summits recently and some top advisor, uh, I almost said support groups, but study groups, but it almost feels like a support group sometimes, just getting everybody's opinions. I want to give you some of the intel that I've received. And then I have Carson and Miles. Um, they may pop in and out as well. Um, they're behind the scenes running the webinar for me. You know, those millennials, we need them to, to take care of the technology. You guys there? Somewhere? Yep. Yeah, we're here. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, good. Okay, so let's do this. We've got, uh, and I'm also going to record this, or we're, we're going to record this, and we'll send this out to you, plus um, other people, if you want to share it in the next few days, early next week. Well, three topics. I think I think the best way, um, and I've got some notes here, but I'm really kind of going off the cuff. I think there's three ways to separate today's um, webinar into different topics. One, I'm going to talk about the banking situation first, just get give you a quick overview and what we're seeing now, um, then talk about you know, what do we think about this stock market and how is it going to grow or not grow in 2023? And then also, you know, what can you or should you be doing right now with your financial plan? So we'll talk about those. So first topic, let's jump into the banking situation. I'll start with Silicon Valley Bank. Um, that was the main one that hit the headlines first. That was a little unusual because it was mostly venture capital money, which means they took unnecessary risk. Um, word on the street was that they didn't even really have a risk manager there, which is arguably mismanagement. Um, of course, I don't know all the inner workings, but um, and then there was two other banks, um, I think like Signature and the other was maybe Silvergate, I believe, and they were highly leveraged to cryptocurrency, um, which has plummeted. So you can see that these banks weren't necessarily directly indicative or uh, tied to the the bigger banking system or systemic, if you will, that we know of. Now, I will say Credit Suisse, that's a big bank, 
Um, they've had issues for over 18 months. So we had headlines with them a year and a half ago. This isn't a huge surprise either. It's just, it's pretty headline worthy though. It's a big one. Um, but what's interesting is the government has been jumping in much more quickly this time compared to 08 um, to bail these banks out, which you could say that's a good thing. You could also say it's a bad thing. I, it's not even about politics here. It's just about what's good or not good for the economy. But they are jumping in quick to backstop and protect the, the, the depositors because the last thing we want is a run on banks, which thank goodness, knock on wood, to date, we've avoided that. Um, and then UBS, they went and bought Credit Suisse. So this is different than 08. And speaking of 08, it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't appear to be the same. We have better balance sheets this time for the banks. There, it doesn't appear that there's any toxic assets. That's things that are you know, hard to value. Back in 08, you had mortgage-backed securities and these derivatives and different things that, um, honestly, the banks and the, the valuation experts, they didn't know how to value them because they didn't know what was inside of them, these bad loans. Doesn't appear that we have much of that. Mainly what happened was as simple as government treasuries. These banks had T-bills, treasuries, on their balance sheets. And as the Fed raised rates so quickly, um, those treasury bills that were paying 2%, now rates are 4 or 5%, they're not worth as much. So while that hurts the balance sheets, it's 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 more of a liquidity issue. It's not a credit crisis like we had in 08. And it's much easier to value those T-bills that have gone down in value than it was some of those toxic assets. So I'm not, go ahead, Carson. Yeah, just to add a couple of different points and in, in stats about Silicon Valley Bank was, I believe roughly about uh, the last stat I saw was about 7% of their overall deposits were traditional retail customers like you and I, you know, sitting on this on this uh, webinar right now. So over 90% of their deposits were coming from businesses and uh, venture capital firms that had large amounts of cash and over 90% of their deposits were above and beyond the FDIC insurance limit. So, you know, if you're keeping an emergency fund in the bank, you've got 50 grand sitting there, you're under the FDIC FDIC insurance limit, but then over 90% of deposits inside of here were over that $250,000 limit. So that just says how important it was for the Fed to come in and go beyond the FDIC insurance limit, because otherwise over 90% of the deposits could have potentially been lost because they were over yeah. that insurance. Limit. It doesn't take a lot of the depositors with that kind of money to pull their money out of a bank and hurt the bank. Whereas if you right. go to like a pinnacle bank or one of these local banks, they've got a lot of you know, regular investors that have $100,000, $50,000, 10000 200000 So it would take a, a major run on the bank, whereas Silicon Valley, it didn't take much to hurt it. So yep. good point. Um, yeah, so we don't think it's systemic, um, but the fear is that, you know, things like this can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Think back to the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. If if 70% of people ran to their local bank here in Nashville and tried to get their money out, the bank wouldn't be able to make good on it and you would have a bank fail, doesn't mean that that bank was necessarily doing anything wrong. It's just the system isn't built to be able to do this. Um, now, my concern, um, just my concern is that, probably some of your concerns as well, that the FDIC insurance, if they can't even assess risk properly, then how the heck is a depositor, you and I, how are we supposed to do that? We're not, it's impossible and unrealistic for us to go and evaluate the balance sheets of banks and look for toxic assets. That's the regulator's job. So all this tax money we're paying for regulation, it needs to work. I mean, and most people look at banks as more like a vault service. You're not looking for return or risk. You're doing that with us in your portfolios and your growth assets. You're looking for a place to say, I just want to know that my money's safe and if and grows a little bit, hopefully. Um, now, and I will also, we, for some of our clients, not everybody on here maybe is clients, I'm not sure, but 
for our clients at Raymond James, Raymond James does a good job through their banking system of spreading out money over multiple banks. So if somebody has a $2 million money market with us, it's spread across different banks to make sure that all of that gets FDIC insured insurance on it. So talk to us offline if you have questions about that or if you have cash at another bank and you want to talk to talk with us through that. Yeah. Um, and I think from a risk standpoint too, it's important to note that Raymond James has a A minus credit rating. They've had that for a number of years. And they also, when you look at capital reserve requirements, they keep twice what is required by the government in capital to be able to meet the to be able to meet the liquidity needs of clients. And so they're extremely well capitalized and have a high credit rating. And that's why they've been such a great partner for the last 20 plus years of David's career. Tell, tell them to get that up to A plus, Miles. A plus. <laughs> I'll, see, I'll see what I can do. All right. Um, so, okay. So that's the banking system. And, and we'll we'll come back to that if people have questions. But hopefully that puts your uh, mind at ease a little bit. I mean, we don't think we're through, you know, out of the woods. There could be some more fallout, but it just seems that it seems that things are stabilizing somewhat, but it is something we need to monitor and we'll continue to monitor. The second topic I wanted to hit on today just a question I'm getting in our client reviews for the last few weeks or really this year. You know, what about the stock market? And David, do you think it's going to grow in 2023? As I always say in joke, my crystal ball is foggy. I talk to a lot of smart people. Nobody knows. But here's what I do know. The last three years, my goodness, they were unprecedented. We had the entire economy shut down for two years. We printed trillions of money, something like a record amount, like half of the dollars ever printed in the history of the U.S. came in the last three or four years. Don't quote me on that, but it's it's that's pretty close. And we paid people not to work. A lot of anomalies that we just have never seen before. So again, it's unprecedented. You can't really go back in history and find that exact lineup. Um, and Carson Miles and I were at a downtown Nashville at a economic summit last night with some really well-known economists. And they were talking about how, remember, our economy here in the US is 30% goods and 70% services. And we shut down all goods here in the U.S., probably for like 15 to 20 days, it seems like. Remember when you couldn't get toilet paper, that sort of thing, and people truly stayed in their house and nobody left. But then goods came back right pretty quickly. But services were down much, much longer. My goodness. And you, so you had a record amount of spending during COVID on goods because people weren't going out and traveling and going to their gyms and health clubs. So what companies like Peloton went through the roof, um, like magic. And then Amazon's, you know, their revenue was way up. He went over all those stats last night. It was fascinating because people were staying home and buying goods. That's going to come back to normal. In fact, we have seen consumer goods spending come back down and spending on services is now back up. Obviously travel and, you know, eating out and all those things has been back for a while, but there's only so much of a threshold you can hit with services. People don't all of a sudden, like with goods, people bought five times the amount of goods they needed during COVID. With services, you don't, there's not two Super Bowls. Uh, you don't necessarily go on four beach trips instead of your normal one or two. I mean, maybe you do, but most people don't. They're just getting back to normal. So that's something we're really watching. All that to say, you know, this could get worse before it gets better. Um, the risk is certainly higher in the market and the economy in the short term until we prove that there's not going to be any major banks fail. Um, I think the market's starting to price that in, that they feel like it's they're seeing some stabilization. Um, so again, I, we here on this call, some of the smartest uh, top advisors that I sit on study groups with and mastermind groups with, we all agree that we have no idea what the market's going to do, but it makes we do know that it makes fools out of people every day. I do think this year is going to be a choppy year, and the current administration is also going to try very hard to make things look better. 
going into 2024. And both Republicans and Democrats, and I'm going to say this blanket statement. Um, no, no political, you know, this is not a political, um, shouldn't have a political tone to it. I'm basically just letting you know from an economy standpoint. So Republicans, Democrats, whoever's running, typically an election year is a pretty good year in the market because they want to do what? They want to get inflation down. They want to make sure unemployment's low. They're going to do all the things, um, even if it's just on paper for a little bit. So, and the stock market may react to that. So likely this, I would say likely we're, we're, we're this is going to be a recession year. Now, I had people asking last year about recession. That's all the media talked about. And the stock market, you know, was down 25% or so over the last 14 months. Usually, looking at my notes here, an average recession, the markets only, the markets go down about 33% and it lasts about 14 months. So you could argue that even if we technically report that we're in a, a recession this year, that the market doesn't have that much more lower to go in order for it to be in line with a normal recession. Now, we did see in 08 where it was more like 40%. We don't think we're in 08 territory. But again, um, it's kind of like, you know, somebody's, you're coming out of a, see if this is a good example. I'll give it a whirl. You're in a bad car wreck and, um, you know, you, you have a broken leg. The ambulance gets gets there, they pump you through a full of morphine, they take you to the hospital, you get to the doctor at the ER and they say, how are you feeling? He's like, I'm feeling great. Well, you know, but the doctor says, yeah, you're pumped full of morphine, please don't get up and walk. And in a lot of way, the morphine in this example is all the trillions of dollars that the government pumped into the economy into people's savings accounts and, you know, PP loans and all those things. And the market really, it's time that we go to PT, physical therapy, and we have to heal and start to get better and that's really what 2023 is about. So I don't have a great feeling for 2023, but I'm also not, you know, nervous or scared or see, you know, telling clients to react, um, that sort of thing. But there are some things I do think you ought to do and that we've been doing in our meetings with clients. I'm going to get to in a minute. Um, so don't hear like recession 2023. Well, why the heck are we doing what we're doing? Um, because recessions, you come out of recessions. They don't last as long as bull markets. You never know when you're going to come out. And if you miss those first two or three weeks out, you can really mess your plan up. Um, let's see what else. Just remember, like volatility happens both ways. COVID, it fell 33% in 34 days. Most of you remember that. And if you're a new client, you probably had money somewhere else. Who would have thought that in six weeks or so, all 30% of that would have come back and then the year finished up 15 to 20% absolutely people got crushed if they tried to get out of the market in market time. Um, and then, you know, 2009, I went to, through 2008 with a lot of you on this call and a lot of my clients, that was really scary. Um, but then we started a 10 year, a 10 to 13 year bull market right after that. So even if you made it through that, you didn't get out of the market within two, three years in our models, you were back to even, and then you had five, six, seven years of really good returns. And I'll digress there. Carson, do you want to say yeah. something? Uh, I'm, I was on gonna, I'm on a roll here. Sorry, I yeah. need to give. Um, yeah, stop. Let me talk. Um, I was just going to mention with, you know, stock market economy, two separate things, but a lot of times correlated in, in, in some senses. So um, the market's trying to price in what's going to happen in the future. So arguably six to 12 months in the future. Economic data that we see is always retroactive. It's looking historically. And a lot of time with the recession, one of the last, um, indicators that comes across as unemployment. So we're at 50-year lows with unemployment, and that's one of the last indicators that kind of indicate a recession. And usually by the time that unemployment starts ticking up, the worst of the recession is potentially already here. And the stock market 
it's pricing in the future. And the reason it does that is because you buy stock based on what the future value is going to be. You want to make money. Everybody wants to make money in the stock market. So whenever we saw the lows last October, I think peak to trough, the S&P was down maybe something like 25%, like you mentioned, David. So the theory could be that even when the worst of the economic activity gets here sometime this year, if that's the case, that there's potential the stock market has already hit the bottom and is already on its way back up. You know, back in 2008, 2009, with the financial crisis, the worst of the economic activity occurred even after the market bottomed in March of 2009. So it's it's one of those things where, yes, we could have a complete fallout in the economy this summer, but is the market specifically going to react in tandem with the bottom of the economic activity? I would say likely not. It could, most certainly, but that's why it's tough to say when the news is the worst to react and say, that's when I don't want to be in the market because you might miss the way back up. Yep. Yeah, you have well said, Carson, and you can't have a global pandemic close down the entire economy for a year or more and not expect to have a gaping hole in the, bo the bottom of your boat, if you will. There's going to have to be some repair work that gets done. Um, so now we're really just waiting to see if the Fed can create this soft landing they've been talking about for a while. I mean, really, there's only three things that the Fed or the government can really do or rely on. You've got um, to get out of a mess like this. Uh, one would be, let's see, um, taxes. You can raise taxes. Now, that's a political you know, difference. A lot of times that becomes a political conversation. But typically, if you raise taxes, you can run the risk of stunting growth and making growth slower. Or the companies, if they're paying more taxes, all of a sudden they're going to increase the cost of their goods. So now a cheeseburger that used to be $5, it's now $10, now becomes $15. And then that hurts you know, different classes of people and that sort of thing. So you have to be really careful there. But that's one way they can get more money. The other thing, which is what um, I tell our clients to do in a situation like this that you can control, but maybe the government can't, is less spending. I don't have a lot of confidence that either party is going to get in there and stop spending. I hope that they do. Fiscal responsibility would say we have to start spending less, especially with interest rates up and the interest rate payments on our government debt is, are going to be higher. So we need to do that. And then the third and the one that we have to rely on the most and what has usually gotten America through these tough times when we're kicking the can down the road politically and fiscally is what? Growth, productivity gains, things like AI, new, like when the internet came out, things that are going to lead to um, just new innovation and growth of the economy that despite higher taxes and government spending, we're able to just grow so much that we get on the other side of it. That was a lot easier to do when interest rates were 2%. It's going to be harder to do in this current economy. So that's where my, that's where my concerns, not fear, but my concerns come in and why we're still a little bit more defensive in our portfolios more than we normally have been. It paid off for our clients last year. And we're still kind of holding that stance until, again, we're not market timers. We're not going to get this perfectly timed right. We don't have to. We just believe that there's more risk on the downside than there is on the upside right now, but we still feel good about long-term plans. And we like that on money at the bank and bonds and things. You can actually get three, four, five percent again, not one or two, like zero or one percent. So there are some positive things coming out of this, which leads me to what should you be doing or can you be doing now from your perspective? Do want to say one thing. Um, the Fed did raise rates 25 basis points yesterday. Um, that was expected. And now and they also said that they're going to watch closely the health of the banks. Um, Carson, were you going to comment on that yeah. or something else? Yeah, along with the Fed funds rate. And, you know, there's also a, a looming um, just, a, just a few trillion dollars of government debt out there, over $30 trillion right now. And um, just... No big deal. Behind that, there's the cost of servicing that debt. 
So we all know the past decade, interest rates have been close to zero for 10 or 15 years. Um, whether or not the Fed should have done that, that is an argument for another day. But the U.S. has a cost to servicing that debt through interest payments. And historically, the cost as a percentage of GDP, so their interest payments they're paying as a percentage of GDP here in the U.S., has been below 2%. So all in all, a relatively low interest payment based on the debt that they have to pay for goods and services and everything else that they've done here in the U.S. Back in the 80s and 90s, that percentage got up to close to 4%. So it's still below half of uh, where it was back in the 90s, considering their interest as a percentage of, the, of GDP. So going forward, I, I think it's our belief that interest rates, they're not going to stay at 4.5%, The government can't afford to keep interest rates this high. Yeah. The amount of debt that they have so probably rate cuts in 2024 i could see and that could um this year i think that's up for grabs but most certainly next year fed fund rate is not going to be at five percent where it's sitting right now it's going to have to come back down we sure hope not because hopefully we see inflation tick down and that means they can actually do quantitative easing lower rates a little bit and then you get a little bit more money you know or cheaper money for companies to use to borrow and grow against so right. um Okay, last topic, and then we'll do some Q&A if you have any, but I want to talk about what can or should you be doing right now? What are we telling our clients if you're not a client? Make sure your bucket one, if you're a client of mine, you know bucket one is your emergency fund, your savings accounts, if you will. Make sure you have enough in there, or honestly, extra. If you're able to still save money, I wouldn't save all your cash and live in fear and, and, and avoid putting money into your stocks and investment plan. But I'd be fine if normally you have a $50,000 six-month emergency fund, have 75, have a little extra. Cash is king right now, and you can actually get paid a little bit on it. The other thing is I think this is a great time to do a review with your financial team and consider, do you take your allocation, do you change it up a little bit? Do you take it back down a little now that bonds have kind of settled and they're paying a higher rate and they got beat up last year, but now that you can get a decent return? What I mean by that is for the last 10 years, I've been telling people, or like the last five years, you know, 80-20 is the new 60-40. What did I mean by that? Well, in the past, if we had a 60-year-old come in here and we said, okay, you could have you know, 60% of your money in stocks, 40% in bonds. This is back 20 years ago when I was doing this in this business, but we could get bonds at 5-6%. So you put 40-50% of your bond and money in bonds, 5 or 6 the rest in stocks, and kind of called it a day, and that was a good, solid portfolio that could hopefully make 7-8-9%. The last five years, if bonds were paying 0 or 1% or even had some negative years, and you had that much of your money in bonds, you're really starting at a deficit and you really relied a lot on stocks. So we had a lot of our clients, even our retired clients that were 75, 80% stocks. Now we had them in more conservative stocks like dividend payers and blue chip stocks, but we didn't want too much in bonds. What I'm saying is now that particular investor, maybe it's time we go back to 70, 30 or 65, 35, add a little bit more bonds. And we'll do that strategically. We don't just pull the plug at once. We'll kind of look at the portfolio, where to do it so we don't generate unnecessary taxes. Maybe try to catch a, a week in the market where it's less volatile, that sort of thing. But revisit that, your allocation. Um, do not bail on your current stocks. I know it feels like, well, David, you're saying 2023 is a recession year, all this negativity. We want out of the stock market. You are not going to know when to get back in. I've not seen anybody do it successfully. I think it's easier to know when to get out than it is to get back in and the cost of missing that. I've, I've talked about that, you know, at length. Um, I'm happy to coach you one-on-one -on -one if you if you disagree there. And I'll say this at the end of the day, I mean, I tell clients, it's your money. We're here to be 
a source of support and coaching and accountability for you. So ultimately, if you just say, I am so nervous, I want, I want 200,000 in cash and only half of my money in stocks and half in bonds. We can do that, but we're going to talk you through it and weigh, take the emotion out and weigh sensibly how that will impact your plan. Quick note on that. I think it's one of those things where we, you can't, you can't go through life ignoring emotions. So just like you said, um, talking through it, I think is extremely, extremely important and really a big reason we are here because you can't just ignore emotions when it comes to investing. You have Not to robots. That's right. We're, we're, we're all human. We get emotional with the stock market. We have conversations literally every day that we have to talk through our emotions with what's going on, but where it can potentially negatively impact you if you if you act and make investment decisions just how you're feeling emotionally because we have roller coaster emotions up and down every day but we talk through it together and get us back to a sensible decision to say hey we've been trusted with, with client assets how do we make the best decision going forward that's going to lead to the best success that's a good point about our emotions. I mean, yeah, we're not we're not immune or numb to this either. We that's why I literally sit and we sit in the three of us are in local study groups with top advisors. I sit on some national groups with uh, mastermind groups with top advisors from you know the, the, some of the best advisors out there, and we all have the conversation. How are you guys feeling and women feeling, and how are you putting your money and like what are you doing with clients? I mean, what changes are you making? What are your most nervous clients saying? How are you appeasing them? What are you what are you doing in your models? Because we always want to, we always want to get better as well. We know that no one person should have the ego uh, on their own to think that they can, you know, navigate these waters, especially when they're unprecedented on their own. Yeah, and I was just going to add. Miles isn't a robot either, right? Yeah, Miles, I mean, the biggest thing to remember is that, you know, the reason it's important to keep your emotions in check is because the volatility, like David said, happens in both directions. So, you're going to see, you know, 1% swing down one day. The next day you might see a 1% swing up. If you get caught trying to trade that market and time that, I mean, that's just a losing game. Nobody's ever, not only is trying to time the market a losing game, but trying to time it in a volatile market like that is extremely tough to do. And nobody's ever had success long-term. Yeah. And and I'll say, um, thanks, Miles, that to continue dollar cost averaging, if you're, if you're working and have income and not retired and you're able and let's just say you said, David, you know, I have $5,000 extra a month to put towards my financial plan and I've got 50,000 in the bank. Maybe you still add a couple thousand, build up your savings a little bit, but still put a few thousand into the market because you're buying into this volatility. Historically, that works really well. It's not when the market's going up that dollar cost averaging works as well. It's when it's choppy and you get more money in the market and you take the emotion. You're not going to feel good sending us 5,000 or $5 million right now, but you very well could feel really good in five years, just like the housing market in Nashville. I'll digress there, you know, people that didn't want to buy during COVID because it was crazy and now prices have doubled. Um, so I want to get to Q&A in a second if we have any, um, but I'll say this. Um, I just, despite the likelihood of increased volatility um, and potentially and potentially more downside, I hope not, but probably a little bit more before it gets better, if I'm honest. We, re we want to remind you as investors, do not lose focus on your long-term goals. We firmly believe and the consensus of, I'd say 95% of the, the people I respect in this business that I've spoken to, we believe that equities are going to print new highs at some point when all this dust settles and we get this fiscal stuff under control, um, just like they have every single time following a recession. Again, the average recession lasts 14 months and goes down about 33%. This has been going on 12 months. We've been down 25%. You know, So there's that. Follow your plan. Have a plan. My most important thing is have a plan. Have cash. Have your three buckets. If you don't know what your three buckets are, 
shame on you. Come see us. Just kidding. But that, that is our personal philosophy. We have a whole three bucket process. Come talk to us. We'll coach you through that. It's so important now to follow these principles um, more than ever, that, especially more than when markets are hot and up 20%. It's kind of easy. If you're up 12% or 22%, everybody's happy. But the difference of being down 40% in a year like last year, or a lot of our clients that were only down 15 or 16%. And I say that sounds kind of jokingly, but the difference of being down 15 versus 30%, that is huge. That's a difference of your money coming back in a year and a half or your money coming back in four years. Um, we are here for you. Um, that's what we do. That being said, I'm looking, I have a few more notes, but I feel like I've hit a lot of these things about the market. Let's see if we have no questions. All right. That would be a record, especially with all we just covered. Maybe we just, maybe I just, uh, drink too much caffeine and talk too fast and you hadn't had a chance. I'm going to give okay. you I've a minute one. or two. Um, yeah. So a question, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it, but it's in essence of, um, so if the world, global debt's been rising, you know, interest rates have been lower. So the world has over $300 trillion in debt. Um, if the overall bond debt's over 420% of global GDP and as interest rates are rising, um, how is the overall public sector going to respond to these interest rates rising, existing bond prices decreasing, um, and essentially what's going to happen with that? So I think I'll, I don't know exactly. I don't have stats on a global basis. I do have some stats on a U.S. basis in corporate corporate debt. Um, and I'm looking at a couple of metrics below me, but in the non-financial, so non-financial institution credit market, so in corporate debt, there's call it roughly twelve trillion dollars. Twelve trillion public market corporate debt. Um, and it's increased rapidly over the past five years, really since COVID. So overall, $12 trillion of corporate debt. That sounds just astonishing. You pair that on top of the uh, U.S. debt over $30 trillion. But however, non-financial corporate assets have hit almost $60 trillion. So there is a huge amount of debt in the corporate world, but there's also a huge amount of assets that's backing that debt. And yes, Corporations have added a lot of debt um, onto their balance sheets, but there's an equivalent amount of assets and pre-tax corporate profits over the past, especially five years, have truly never been higher than the five greatest years on record of corporate profits. Will it continue this year? You know, it's a who knows how corporate profits are going to be this year. Profits will probably be profits will probably be down this year. That's right. That's right. Five but, really good years. If there is a time in this world for corporations to pay interest on their existing debt that's at a lower price, um, necessarily the value of the debt on their balance sheets isn't as important. Um, if they have to liquidate it, that's one thing. But it's uh, the service on that debt and the assets to back it. Um, there's value there. So yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of people here, you know, a similar thing. You look at debt to GDP, and you're like, well. You know, our debt to GDP ratio used to be way less than other countries, and then it got to be 100%. But that doesn't on its own, as long as if, if your GDP is still growing and your debt's growing, as long as they're in tandem and the ratios don't get too far off, then you can kick the can down the road. That does not mean that we don't believe, not that our personal opinions matter, but I'll share them. I do think the government needs to spend less and run a balanced budget um, the way they did at one point back in the eight, eight or 90s, I believe when Clinton was in. We had a surplus for a while. We need to get back to that because I can't imagine a client making 200,000 a year and spending 350,000 a year. We know what's gonna happen. They're gonna pull out their investments and they're gonna, they can't go print money in their basement. So we do need to, the trend is not positive. It's going in the wrong direction, but it's still, 
we're still the prettiest house on an ugly block against the rest of the world, which I know, you know, can be confusing at times, but it does matter. I mean, the dollar is still where people flee now with our treasuries at 5%. I mean, a lot of the money, a lot of money in the world still flees to the U.S. for safety. Can we screw that up over time? Can we? Of course we can, but it's not going to happen in a year or two. I had people asking the same question at Brentwood Country Club, and I would speak to an investment club back in 2007 and eight, they would say, David, if we get to 20 trillion in debt, this country's over and the dollar's not worth anything and you, you better own a bunch of gold. Not that that wasn't a valid fear, but it didn't happen. Why? Because people aren't going to use gold as a currency. You can't take a, block, a bar of gold and go and buy bottled water or you know a cheeseburger or whatever. So a lot has to happen for that. But we run the risk of like, we could mess things up over the next 10 and 20 years if we don't course correct. I still believe in America. I still believe, and it's been harder lately because we're so polarized, but I still believe that we can um, course correct and we can um, move the pendulum back a little bit more fiscally. I'm not talking about um, political parties, um, but I do believe that we'll, we'll do that. I just hope that it's enough. And if it's not enough, we'll, we'll have some issues. I mean, we, we see what happens in other countries, but we'll continue to monitor that. So um, I don't see any other questions. And I see a couple people dropping off. Um, thanks for taking this time with us. We're going to send you, if I see a question pop up here in a second, I'll answer it. But we're going to send you a replay of this. Takeaway is, if you have any questions about your plan, email myself, Miles Carson, and we will answer your question promptly, same day, within 24 hours. And we'll even set up a meeting, you know, of course, if you want to talk through it. But just... Let your peace of mind come through your planning and through having a meeting or a conversation with us. That is the way to address this, not by feeling the need to go jump online and sell your half of your 401k or do anything like that. Just let's be methodical about it. Yeah. I, uh, can I end with a fun fact? You, I'll allow it. Okay. Did you know that there are 293 ways to make change for a dollar? Is this a joke or is this? No, that's serious. No. Oh. No, does he, do people even use change anymore? I don't see change very often. No, not me. Um, but thanks. I, for guess, I guess you can say that that makes a lot of sense. We can end with that. Oh my gosh. Did y'all wait? If y'all rehearsed that, you're both, nope. you're both in HR notice if you do that. That was funny, That's if not. That was, that was cute. Good. All right. <laughs> on, that, on that, we will end and say thank you. And we'll be in touch. And um, yep, reach out if you need us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Retire While You Work podcast. I'm David Adams, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we discuss creative ways to manage your time and money. Any opinions are those of myself and not necessarily those of Raymond James. Expressions of opinion are as of this date and are subject to change without notice. The information contained in these podcasts do not purport to be a complete description of the securities market or developments referred to in this material. The information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but we do not guarantee that the foregoing material is accurate or complete. 
Every investor situation is unique and you should consider your investment goals, risk tolerance, and time horizon before making any investment. Prior to making an investment decision, please consult with your financial advisor about your individual situation. Any hypothetical examples are for illustration purposes only. Actual investor results will vary. Raymond James does not provide legal or tax services. Please discuss these matters with the appropriate professional.